another episode of Through Another Lens, our football culture podcast, and it's a bit of a red letter day for us. It's our first guest on the podcast. We've got Louis here with us. Uh, Louis, good to have you here. Hi, guys. Great, and we've got Alex and George making their second appearance here on the podcast. Hello. Welcome oh, yeah. back, guys. Uh, World Cup's not far away. Uh, we did our last episode on the FIFA Uncovered documentary on Netflix. Uh, so continuing with that theme, uh, we've got Louis here, whose recent documentary on Croatia, which is on FIFA Plus, uh, which I highly, highly recommend. We're here to discuss it, some broader questions about the role sport plays when it comes to national identity, uh, sport for social change. Just a lot of interesting topics which we will dive into. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I just want to get you guys a bit warmed up. So why don't we go around? George, we'll start with you. Tell me your favourite World Cup goal. I've got two. I think one from an English point of view um, was Joe Cole's goal against Sweden. That was. I still have that shirt when I was... I think I would have been about seven. That's just one of my favourite goals. One of my favourite players. And then second was... Um, uh, South Africa versus Mexico, Shalaba's goal, um, Shalaba's goal, sorry. Um, it was, I, I remember um, finishing school in year six, I think I was in at the time, running home just to get just to get home for that game, for the opening game. And that, that goal was brilliant. The celebration as well, the goal was it. Just, even the commentary was good for that. Even, oh, Peter Drury, just yeah, classic. Iconic, all, all together. But that, those, those are my two standouts, I think. Yeah. Alex? Uh, mine is hopelessly romantic, I'm afraid, Shubi. Um You guys might be too young to remember this, but I'm sure Louis remembers it fairly well. It, at, the, at the 2006 World Cup, there was all this talk about whether Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo phenomenon, was way past his best. Um, he had a couple of quite sloppy group games, and then there was two goals he scored against Japan, but his last ever goal in a Brazil shirt was... Um, he came running from deep and he just kind of rolled back the years. He, he, he ended up one-on-one with a goalkeeper. He threw a step over, sent, just sat the keeper down and just walked the ball into an empty net. And, you know, you can see him physically. Everyone, everyone quite rudely now calls him the fat Ronaldo. Um, but you could see then he was physically changing. He was definitely a lot heavier than he was in his early years. But just for that brief second, he looks like that guy who kind of first onto the scene in 1998 and um, and I don't think he ever, I'm pretty sure he never scored for Brazil again but that was also his last goal at a World Cup so yeah it's a bit of a romantic one Il Phenomena I have to see the documentary still I've heard it's really good yeah I'm, I, I'm also it. yet to yet to indulge in that but um, what if Louis did that? yeah Louis what's yours yeah so I think um, my uh, probably like one of the most iconic ones from my youth is I mean I watched Italian 90 um, but I think the 1994 was like a, a real sort of massive tournament for us, even though England weren't playing. There's Ray Houghton's goal uh, against Italy, which is really famous for, for Ireland. But Bebeto's goal um, against um, Holland, just for the celebration, it was just a wonderful celebration. He was just about to have a baby. Um, and uh, he, he did the whole sort of baby celebration with his arms. And then I she got to interview him. Must have been about six years ago now, and obviously we did it with him, and it, that was great. And then most recently, I think there were so many goals in 2014. Um, James Rodriguez goal for Colombia stands out, and the the Van Persie diving header in the in the first round was like, what a quality goal that was. Um, so yeah, uh, not one, but a few. Yeah, I think 
For me, I go one would. I was thinking about it. There's the Ronaldo free kick in the last World Cup against Spain. Um, I, I perhaps I think that's when he was at his peak as a player, like the last peak before I guess it all went downhill. <laughs> uh, and just from a drama standpoint, it was amazing. Was and the other one, which TV. yeah, <laughs> um, the other one which was from the '98 World Cup, which I was just thinking about, was the Burkham goal against Argentina. Uh, just the touch, the finish, everything. Um, I know a lot of people who actually became Arsenal fans just because of that goal. Uh, so it just went beyond anything anyone had seen on a football field. Um, so, Louis, your documentary, Croatia, a Nation Defined, um, can you just tell us a little bit about it? Like, if you had to tell someone what it is about in a few sentences, what would you say? Sure, it's a film... Um... Uh, that uh, is essentially a story about a band of brothers, a uh, phenomenally talented young group of men who play for Yugoslavia in their in their youth um, in their youth days, win the World Cup, World Youth Cup, but then see their country be torn apart by war, uh, and it's their journey as um, the breakup of Yugoslavia happens and the sort of birth of Croatia as a nation happens and their role within it and the role of football. Uh, the important role of football in in both the breakup of Yugoslavia and and defining the the, na- the new nation of Croatia. So it's many things. Um, it is uh, it is a sport film. It is a it is a historical film. It's a politics film and it is a war film, all wrapped up into one. And how did you um, you know decide that this is a story I want to tell and focus on this aspect of Croatia's story because. Um, Interestingly, there isn't. Uh, there's only a very little bit about the 2018 World Cup, right? They run to the final. Most of it is what basically led to that. So, how did you decide that this is what you want to focus on? So, it's a moment in time. The moment in time is them, um, a young nation, very small nation. There's still only roughly four million people within it. Um, uh, go to finish third in the world um, uh, at a time when there's a lot of extraordinary teams there i mean in that tournament you have france you have brazil um obviously croatia england are actually quite good at that time as well right um so uh it's a remarkable achievement um and then the scenes from zagreb were absolutely fascinating it was a real outpouring of emotion you know not just elation but crying all the rest of it um and it's uh when you see those scenes happen it it it, it clearly means more than just a standard victory right so obviously everyone celebrates if your team win the world cup it's a big event you know you forget about things we all know these things especially if you're if you're english england have done quite well recently in tournaments um but it meant more for those guys because of everything they've been through i mean the the yugoslav wars yugoslav wars should i say were incredibly brutal um up until the recent invasion of ukraine probably the biggest war since World War Two, well, definitely the biggest war since World War Two, um, and a very complex one as well. I mean, there's a lot of um, lot of soul searching going on from from all the various republics involved, because um, it's not as if it's as easy as one side versus another. There was multiple sides versus multiple sides, and people had split identities as well. So people are part Serbian, part uh, Croatian, a bit of Bosnian, all the rest of it. So it's not it's not a simple thing. And so um, the story is really interesting and I find it really fascinating because um, you have all those emotions 
pulled together and you have a very real um, um, story and narrative of football being kind of not totally key for everything that happened, but being a really big part of it, really being a really big tool, um, both for the, the breakup of Yugoslavia and then very clearly in the promotion of a, of a, of a new country. So it's a narrative that, that exists, is really fascinating, I think, and, and quite powerful. Uh, so, Louis, you touch on um, the the band of brothers, uh, the Croatian national team. Um, but I think the the figurehead or the manager for that was Miroslav uh, Blažević. How important was he um, for keeping that sense of community uh, within the Croatian national team at such at such troubling times? Well, I think I mean in, obviously in the, he 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 was a, a legend within Yugoslavian football because he had taken Dinamo Zagreb to the nineteen eighty two. Um, state championship or the the Yugoslav championship at a time where most of the football at the time was largely in favour of teams from Belgrade winning it so it's very rare for a team uh, from Croatia to win it even though they were fantastically strong Hajduk and and, um, Dinamo especially uh, are very strong football teams so and he was a he's always been a character Uh, he'd he'd always um, had this incredible um, way of dealing with anyone um, so what does that mean? It means that he makes you feel good the moment you walk into a room. So after we finished our interview, he kissed me on the cheek twice. <laughs> and said he, I reminded him of Fellaini, the famous Italian film director, and said it was the best interview that he'd ever done. <laughs> then we sat there, we talked to him, and he just looked me in the eyes and kissed me again. He said, son, you're going all the way. You're going all the way, but just remember, don't take any shit. If someone wants something from you, it's all about the fucking money. <laughs> um, and so... And it makes you feel good. I mean, our, our Croatian producer, Anna, who um, is a, a, a well-established, very talented journalist in her own right. Um, she was a Croatian correspondent for Croatian News here in London. So she knows everyone from the politics and the sporting world and even up to the royal family. Um, you know, he'd met her and she said she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. And, you know, she likes the charm. She found it quite funny. And then her husband, David, turned up who... Um, is a bit older than our son, same age as Anna, with sort of nearly 40. David's sort of 50, lost a bit of his hair, French, you know, looks like quite a bit of a man, had a bit oh. of a belly at the time, and he just turned around and looked at him and went, oh, oh, Anna, your husband, he's a real man, isn't he? And <laughs> tweaking his biceps and doing that stuff. And so it makes you feel good because it brings everyone, everyone in. So Chiro gets the job um, in sort of 93, 94-ish. No, sorry, 94. 95 ish and um, he's the best person for the job because the the team you know a lot of the team that uh, are there are incredibly talented you're talking Davos Suka you're talking Zvonimir Bobam Robert Pozhenetsky is one of the best players in the world at that point um, you've got fantastic defenders in, in Eagle Stimach and, and um, Slavin Bilic Robert Yarni you could go on and on right and they're all um, because of the time that they brought up in very, very strong-headed, right? Zvonimir um, uh, Boban fly-kicks a policeman because he believes in the Croatian national cause, becomes essentially an icon for the whole of Yugoslavia. He is lauded by one side and hated by the other. He has to go into hiding. You don't do that shit if you, if you don't believe in what you think. Um, and so you've got to kind of control these players who are very talented, Um are playing largely playing at massive clubs around the world. I mean, at that point, um, Prozenetsky's at Real Madrid. You know, Bovan's at uh, Atsi Milano. It's, it's, it goes on and on. So, 
he, you know, in a sense, did they need coaching? Yeah, a little bit, but ultimately they needed to, they needed that that little spark that they could, you know, just believe in. Um, so he he's very key uh, for it happening. Um, would it have happened without him? Maybe would it have happened without the players? Definitely not. But the combination is is what gets them there. Uh, Louis, I just wanted to ask you: choosing to kind of ignore the the 2018 World Cup campaign was quite—I mean, I would say it's quite a brave choice, kind of journalistically in terms of the story you're telling as well. What challenges, or perhaps even what freedoms, did you find that it kind of presented for you when you were when you were actually making the film? Well, the first cut of the film was around about three and a half, four hours long, and that was without the 2018 stuff in it. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't really like films that go over 90 minutes, but ultimately this film was always meant to be around about two hours long. So if you really go into the Croatian 2018 success, um, uh, you're adding another 15 minutes on the end of it. We, we originally tried starting with it and trying to link it and how it all made and the rest of it, but it just felt a bit forced. There's... You, 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 the, the, the skill of this film, I guess, and Sam, the editor, Sam McMulkin, the editor, um, did a lot of the heavy work on this, like just trying things, and you know, whilst I was out on shoots and all the rest of it, um, is that there's a lot of different topics to build in here. This is not a film about, you know, we talked about a phenomena earlier, like it's not, it's not like a Ronaldo piece, which is like Ronaldo's really great, and you know, um, I mean, I'm due to watch it, it's on the BBC soon, right? But, um, you know, I'm pretty sure they're not going to get into some of his personal life and what he's been up to, right? But, um, you know, it's going to be about the football and, you know, the things that he's allowed to talk about. But here we're talking about band of brother story. We're talking about uh, breakup of a regime. We're, talking, we're introducing the concept of regimes to people like most people will have forgotten Yugoslavia now. Um, uh, it's complex anyway. The different republics. There's a whole, there's all sorts of things going on between them. And then within the footballism, there's just so much to get in. So it's another thing to add on the end of it. And ultimately, the decision not to go mad into it was, well, what do we need to say? You know, they were inspired by this team. So we say that they are inspired by their team. And the bits of archive that we found do, do, do that job. I mean, we'd, we'd interviewed Nico Kranjska, um, uh, who, um, you know, I'd love to have included more of him because he's a great guy. Uh, but ultimately, he just needed to say that they were inspired. And then we found bits of archive that threw forward to the World Cup. And then actually, by mixing the 2018-1998 stuff and having Modric saying that, does the job. Yeah. Have you got any particular desire, do you think, to, to follow this up? Maybe with a sequel that might be focusing on that team? Because obviously the political landscape in Croatia has, has, has changed quite a lot recently. There was a sort of what was deemed a far-right populist government, certainly in charge quite recently. But I think they've gone slightly further left-wing now, so it is still a country that has sort of a little bit of political instability. Any appetite? I'd love to um, see it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think I think if you were to do one of the later versions of Croatia's history, it would be less about um, uh, national politics and more about the football politics. There's been a large corruption case running throughout Croatian football for the past 12 years, which was solved just before the World Cup in 20. In 2018, um, the fans turned their back on them. There was loads of riots involved. Um, they weren't performing particularly well. Um, so, uh, if you were to do something on that generation, it would be 
more along those lines and turning it around because I'm not even sure they were expecting to go that far themselves. They only barely qualified for it. Um, uh, maybe. We'll see. Depends. Um, you know, maybe something I'll work on. I'm not sure I'm particularly keen on directing it. Uh, I think I'd be more interested in more of the characters behind that that time. You know, Boban, for instance, doesn't speak. So that would be an amazing film, uh, given that he's the guy that's gone on to do VAR and um, uh, as his role as um, assistant generally general secretary of fifa he pretty much pushed the avar through it wasn't going through without his politicking uh and then is now number two at, U at uefa so incredibly interesting man uh i'd probably want to go more on that route of the thought um i don't know about you guys but when i saw nico kranja the first thing that came to my mind was harry redknapp yeah. <laughs> <laughs> harry redknapp around um but you know one of the most interesting things for me right um was in the early part of the documentary the focus on dinamo zagreb um mm. just the club itself right because so about a couple of weeks ago i was at the bridge for the chelsea zagreb game and their away fans sang the entire 90 minutes their flares going off even when chelsea score like they don't stop singing like they were so much louder that small pocket was so much louder than the rest of the chelsea fans so and I think whenever, I guess, today a modern football fan thinks about Dinamo Zagreb, you just think of them as, you know, one of those teams which is there in the Champions League group stages, uh, a bit of like a whipping club for some of the bigger teams, you know. Uh, and you don't really think too much of them and their history and how big they really are. Um, so I just want to know, through your research for this, being in Croatia, what does Zagreb, the club, the Dinamo, the club mean, uh, you know, to the country? It means a lot. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a club where uh, we have to remember about Yugoslavia is that nationalism was banned, um, so the regime put down any sort of expression of Croatian identity, Serbian identity, Montenegrin identity. You know, you couldn't do it. Uh, you'd end up in prison um, if you were more extremist. It worse could happen. There would be beatings and and occasionally a punishment by death. Right, very serious stuff. Um, so, um, and look, I mean, Croatia, Zagreb and Hajduk Split are both very important to Croatian national identity because both those cities, they're quite far apart. Um, it was a place where you could raise a Croatian flag every now and again. You could do these things. Um, uh, in the same way that uh, Red Star Belgrade, Partizan Belgrade would be the same um, uh, for those republics. So... But all incredibly vital uh, uh, clubs, really, and, and probably far bigger um, a resonance um, to a, to the population than perhaps we have with our clubs here, especially now, which is we're living in a very corporate uh, environment for our Premier League, and it's it's uh, yeah, it's a worldwide brand now. Clubs are brands, you know. Um, uh, so so massive Zagreb. We we've honed in on Zagreb a little more than Hajduk. But because largely of the the kick that happens and the riot that happens between uh, Red Star, Svenis Vesda and, and, and um, Dinamo Zagreb, it's a riot that happens just a few days after the first ever regional parliamentary elections. So in the fall of the... Everything used to be centred in Belgrade and that was it. And then as uh, communism fell apart, they realised that they had to give credence to the regions to just try and save the regime and that meant local elections which meant the nationalists got in um at every 
in every republic. Um, so three days after that, there's this match between Red Star and, and um, Dinamo. There have been fights before. There have been expressions of this stuff before. It's not like it's completely uncommon. But this one was particularly brutal. It was very, um, very violent. Uh, they, they poured acid. You know, there was acid being thrown around. They, 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 they pre-prepared rocks to throw and all the rest of it. Uh, and it gets so bad that that that, that Boban, um, who is and always has been a Croatian patriot, um, gets annoyed with how the uh, state police, the the federal police, are treating the Zagreb fans. He feels that um, the Red Star fans are being let off a load of stuff, and then actually they're just you know attacking the the Red Star fans, and so he fly kicks a policeman. And that kick is, I mean, we, you don't necessarily say it in the film, but it, there's a statue outside of the Maximir Stadium which says um, that it's that kick. And it says to all of those who consider this, this is the kick that started the Homeland War. This is, that was some you know, kick, huh? That was yeah. some kick. It was, well, it, was, it wasn't the greatest kick, but it became, an, it became an image, right? It became an image at the time. There's tensions going left, right and centre. Everyone knows it's going to crap. I, mean, I think it's a big myth that... Um, that it started the war or anything like that because clearly it was going wrong beforehand clearly all these, these things were happening but it became a, a massive piece of pr uh, and a very difficult time for for, for zvonimir right because he's don't forget at the time he's one of yugoslav's best players he's already involved in the national team and all the rest of it and it's harder for croatians to get in um and uh, he has to go into hiding for weeks and weeks and then so um, we focused on Zagreb. We focused on 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 those side of the stories because you don't get the breakup without them. I don't think you know. Uh, I think it, it it helps. And all those fans that supported them, they they go and fight. They go fight in the war. They are the people that go to war. So, Louis, um, you touched on the um, elections there. I just wanted to touch on uh, Franjo uh, Tushman um, and how um, supportive of uh, the. Um, Croatian athletes he was. Just why why was he so supportive of those Croatian athletes to play their sports? So I mean Franjo Tudjman, I mean he's an interesting character. What I think um one thing you have to remember about the, the politicians at the time that they are all largely part of the uh, hierarchy of the federal uh, government in the first place, right? So they're already these are the guys that go to war. They are I mean you mentioned an earlier question about them having a right-wing populist government. I mean I, th I think Tujman is a controversial character, right? Um, like, you know, I don't think Croatia are necessarily, you know, all the troops or the rest of it. It's not like black and white, this war. Um, so, but he, um, he, uh, he obviously knew that for his cause to get out there, that um, uh, they needed a positive, they needed positivity. They need to be on the right side of, of PR. So, Croatia play a blinding PR war game out of all of this, right? So if you're studying war and outside of sport and all the rest of it, um, they exceed quite quickly. Uh, not exceed, they they get out quite quickly. Um, it ends in uh, a pretty brutal war pretty quickly, uh, and they um, uh, effectively the war, the actual Croatian war itself is pretty short. It's a bit less than a year. Uh, for the original homeland war and at which point um it doesn't take them long to get um recognition as a country for the united nations and the rest of it so therefore they are legitimate in the eyes of the west very early on um and then 
with with that power he ha he therefore has the opportunity to uh, make decisions um and he needed to keep up that positive image of croatia around the world so sending his um sportsmen and musicians and actors and actresses uh, out of the country uh, to go and promote the croatian cause is one of the best things that you can do because you are putting someone in a public space that people love, right? So Boban going to Milan and becoming a darling in the Italian, and he still is a darling of the Italian media, is huge. Um, uh, <clears throat> and, and the deal is that they all have to go and promote the Croatian cause, right? So if they win something, get that flag out there. So you see it with Eva Mioli when she wins the French Open in 97, the Croatian flag around her. Obviously, the football team do their thing. Um, if they're interviewed and all the rest of it, they they happily talk about the situation at home, promote it. It's another thing saying you've got to come on, guys. You've got to, and, and you see all of this now with Ukraine, um, uh, and Goran Ivanisevic as well. You know, like when he wins Wimbledon, the Croatian flag comes out, all the rest of it. People know it and they associate it with a good thing. Um, and it's PR, right? It's just just pure PR, and it is a, a very effective tool. Yeah, one of the most um, prominent figures um, that I thought in the documentary was obviously was obviously Boban. You touched on him quite a lot. How important was he as a symbol for the Croatian people? Huge. He could become president tomorrow if he so choose. choose to, I think he's possibly um, uh, intelligent enough to realise it's probably something you might want to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but he could. You know, people listen to him. He he specifically doesn't speak much because he knows the value of not speaking that much. Um, but um, like he, he he did his action, um, and then uh, promoted his team in the right way. Um, and that is, um, you know, that that has led him to be, be become quite quite a big quite a bit of the symbol and like you know he was he was always a leader all that all that team were leaders uh but he he could lead that team you know so i mean that's that's quite a big thing uh could you just um briefly tell us the story about um boban he didn't exactly lead you on a wild goose chase but he had quite specific requirements in terms of what you had to do to impress him and convince him to come on to the documentary i think could you just tell us that because it's a great story yeah, sure. So, I mean, like, like, our documentary is all about access and, you know, when we're pitching the stuff, it's the first thing that comes up. Um, we pretty much had enough access from everyone else to make the story at least, but obviously Boban would be, he's so key to the whole thing that it's, you know, hard to do it without him. And um, he, um, uh, we were in con conversation via intermediaries for quite some time. Uh, he was no for a very long time, refused to pick up the phone, all that sort of stuff. And then um, eventually uh, there was enough charm for us to get into the room with him and he made us fly up to Zagreb for a weekend and we sat there in, in his restaurant in central Zagreb while he's, he's smoking his cigars and, you know, asking us what we feel about football and, you know, Super League and all this stuff. Because, I mean, he was one of the guys that fended off the Super League as well, right? Uh, he was brought in by Seferin to, to fight that fire. Um, and you know very very charming and then we got around to it and then we were saying all the right things and then he goes maybe maybe I might do this and then and the, but I think he from his point of view I think it's not a story he talks about very much I think he's very bored of only ever to being asked about the kick and what about the rest of his life and then I think um, 
it, uh, you know, why are these English guys making this film on on this? You know, all, all those sort of things, and even right up to the day of it of it happening, we weren't sure if it was actually going to happen. Uh, but uh, he he led us on that merry goose chase. But he turned up and he was brilliant. Yeah. It was a fantastic interview. Um, you know, he's obviously clearly intelligent. Wanted to do it in Croatian rather than English or Italian because he felt it was best to do it in his mother tongue, which is fine by me. Um, uh, and you know, he he clearly, um, he he clearly can tell a good tale. I just wanted to like jump in there. You know, you were talking about how he gave a really good interview. He is right. Like when he's on screen, you're captivated by his stories. Yeah. Uh, I feel all of the interviews, right? Like I felt like Igor Stimaj, who is so good when he was telling the story about them in Chile, right? Mm-hmm. And about the girls and like that entire story. And you can tell that they're like back in their youth and like they're reliving those memories. And it really comes across. Um, I obviously have a bit of a soft spot for Igor Stimash because he's the Indian team national coach. So mm-hmm. um, just a bit of a always rooting for him there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, this is something which me and we've spoken about on this podcast about Picking the right interviewees, right, for these documentaries, because you, all, the biggest names aren't always the most interesting, um, you know. So how, did, was that something which you thought about, but who will be good in front of a camera? Who talks well? Or I just want to understand, how do you pick who to talk to beyond just their name? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously names are massive, so you have to speak to, to these people. And like, I'm very glad we got Boban. There's a few people we didn't, couldn't get Yanni, but I wasn't too bothered because I knew he wasn't going to speak that well. Um, I knew Asanovich would be good, uh, but like, really you needed you needed, St- you needed Bowman, you needed Steamatch, and you needed um, Slavin Bilic. And, you know, everyone knows that Slavin's a really good talker because he does a lot of media work here, right? Um um, so you knew that would be good. It's just getting them, but then it's also about telling the rest of the story. Um, so it's good to have a football journalist on board. Jonathan Wilson obviously wrote um, uh, his book on on football in the Balkans or the or the Eastern Europe, uh, which I can't quite re- over there. I can't quite remember the name of, but uh, look at it. It's very good. Very good read. He's an excellent journalist, and you know he's a good talker because he he does his all the podcasts and whatnot. Um, and then it was, we felt we needed authentic Croatian or Yugoslav voices to take us through the political and football history there. Uh, and then, it, and then uh, we, we very much knew that we needed uh, an independent sort of war voice. And look, I, I think we were asked in the, in, the, in the discussion earlier about like having a Serbian voice. I kind of felt it more important to actually have an independent voice as someone on the ground because um, the uh, war and everything around it is uh, so heavily PR and there's a lot of views uh, about what's not and for a lot of people they didn't actually experience this stuff you know Martin was on the front line every day dealing with all the characters so you know when he talks about um, Rakan the paramilitary leader or what Milosevic was like I mean he was regularly going for lunches with these people during the war so you know you know there, there is no better source than that Louis, I just wondered if you felt any sort of like personal conflict given the kind of constant scandals surrounding FIFA. Obviously, the the um, documentary is now available to watch on FIFA Plus, which is you know it's a great platform for watching lots of good films. But do you do you feel any sort of conflict that it's sort of being used by FIFA to kind of puff themselves up and make themselves look sort of interested in culture when essentially they're sort of 
uh, accused quite often of being a money grabbing um, and mm. corrupt organization. Good question. Um, I think initially we were sort of like, okay, oh, you know, interesting. I think the reality is that pretty much all production companies do work for these organizations. So everyone's got a contract with the Olympics. People work for someone's going to make this stuff. Largely UK. It's been a very UK heavy um, uh, um, history of broadcasters doing their titles, doing their films for FIFA anyway. They've been doing it for years. Uh, the guys who made FIFA Uncovered, I know them very well. They've they've done World Cup films themselves before. So, um, uh, uh, I think I would have had a big major problem if FIFA would have uh, tried to restrain what we were doing editorially, and they didn't. In fact, I've had um, independent broadcasters, uh, and I won't mention their names, be far more worrisome about their legals and all the rest of it. They were kind of like you know they obviously got it all checked out and they showed it to serves and all the rest of it but they they were like no they there was a lot of trust going in there so proof is in the pudding uh as for scandals and all the rest of it um fifa i think very much are uh, i mean they wouldn't have they wouldn't have provided all those interviews for fifa uncovered if they weren't trying to change their um change their output right uh there was full cooperation with uh ventureland the production company there um FIFA past, right? This is FIFA, FIFA now. Um, I think a lot of this stuff probably goes away in the new year, quite frankly. Um, uh, or, or lessons off in the new year. Whatever happens now is going to be tough for Qatar uh, and, and for FIFA because they're in the eye of the storm. Um, but uh, look, I mean, if if people are willing to promote um authentic proper storytelling they should be applauded for it right um i'm not 100 percent sure this film would have got a commission from netflix in fact it wouldn't have done um uh and local broadcasters outside of croatia would not make it because why is it relevant to them so amazon have a strategy uh and i'm not criticizing these people this is their strategy amazon have a strategy of big name you know how big what's the market let's go from there the story often in sports filmmaking for them is lower down you know you know um the food chain right so uh yeah uh, i hope that answers it <laughs> yeah and you know i find that interesting right now because i feel football documentaries there has been this bit of a boom right in the last few years you're seeing almost new ones coming out every day and i feel like steadily like there is that shift going into deeper stories right so while there are the occasional like augmentaries and like the neymar documentaries which are just complete pr jobs uh occasionally you do find like something like for example like the figo documentary which is really great uh so i want to understand what have you made of this general landscape uh in the past few years how has it changed is it changing or is this just an outside perception we have well, I think historically, um, you, you're right, there's a boom in it. Um, uh, I think what you're getting uh, now is a lot more filler, you know, um, especially from broadcasters that have internal resource to just pump out stuff. Um, so that exists. There's a lot more big money um, shows being made largely with access attached to it. 
sometimes that's great sometimes there's no story um and i've felt that a lot of the films i've made uh uh are amazing stories but would be considered niche in that in that market if that makes sense you know it's uh um you know hard to get some of these things away especially a story like that so i think if there is more space for creativity it's great all you can really do as a program maker or a film director or as a production company is just concentrate on the, doing the stuff that you do very well the rest of the market doesn't necessarily concern me to be honest it's sort of you know um every there's an ecosystem and everyone can can live in it uh, Lou, i just wonder if i could ask you briefly about kaiser because it's such a wonderful mm. film and i was quite surprised that mm. um as there was less people than I expected on, on our course to have watched it because it's just, it's not really a football film in kind of any way other than this guy claims to kind of play football once. But when you're approaching making a documentary about a famous con artist, how do you make sure that you can make kind of a piece, he, you know, that he doesn't kind of con you into making the documentary he wants you to make? That's the film. Yeah. <laughs> uh like he the first two trips that's all he yeah. tried to do um um and then the film is what it is because we just like we go this is not a yeah. story if it's just the same old stories coming out and him organizing everything so then you start organizing other interviews outside of his knowledge then he finds out about it and then starts having a go at you and then you just do it yeah. anyway and you're going on a cat and mouse chase around rio de janeiro trying to find semblance of truth and then actually there's a few people that have gone along with the story for years but then kind of like you know what if this is going as big as it is I mean, we kind of need to just go you know this guy needs to be you know the truth needs yeah. to come out um and you're right it's not a story about football and i think it's a film that at the time uh when it was released i think we were kind of pushed towards sports buyers who were like clearly you know how can i put this on my sports channel that you know three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon with the amount of swearing and sex and mafia shit that goes on in there. But as time's gone on, it, it, it um, it's being appreciated for what it is, which is a, a character study, a, a study of um, belief uh, and human psyche and about um, what, what you want to believe and what you consider to be true um, and what the need for that is in society. Yeah. Any any listener to this podcast, if you haven't seen Kaiser, you've just got to go out and see it. It's the, I, was trying to, I was convincing these guys earlier. It's just the twists and turns you get taken on. Um, it's just abs absolutely remarkable. Is it Carlos Enrique? Is it, was was the guy Carlos Enrique Hoposa, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating two year period of my life making that, where I basically lived on and off in Brazil, and you know. Uh, it's not a football story, even though we interviewed um, Bebeto, Carlos Alberto Torres, all these amazing players. We also get chased down by the mafia and, you know, end up in brothels with transgender strippers and all this sort of shit. You know, it's not. Uh, and then the head of the Brazilian mafia also just phoning up, telling he loves the story and can you can you can you take me out for dinner and all this sort of stuff like. We're not. It's not. It's not. Um, Did you say yes? I, yeah, I could dine out for years yeah. on stories on that. Did you huh? say yes? Yeah, <coughs> we did. Yeah, but he had to cancel. It was a bit annoyed because it would have like <laughs> properly changed the whole thing of the film. Um, 
Dude, we've been talking about your film, so now I'm gonna get personal and ask you a question about yourself now. Would you say you are a football fan first and then a filmmaker, or a filmmaker and then football comes second? Um, no, it's a kind of. I am a football fan. I mean, I go and watch Brighton play most games uh, at home and occasionally away. Uh, a lot of my work is around football, so you know. I have to pay more attention to it than most. Um, but yeah, no, filmmaking is uh, is my thing. And, you know, uh, I, I won't do those other things if there's an amazing project on, right? Um, uh, you, I thrive on telling stories and, and that's, um, that's where I've ended up. That's what I like doing. As a Brighton fan, so is there a Graham Potter documentary in the works coming up? No, but Bjorn, his assistant, lives in the house just over there. So um, no way. Yeah. So um, and I've yet to see him since they've moved. We've, uh, his kids play with my kids sometimes. So um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll respectfully ignore that question. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I thought just to wrap up, uh, you know, World Cup lesson week. So I want to hear. We'll go around. I want to hear your most hot take for the World Cup, right? It doesn't have to be based in logic, pure vibes, uh, you know, something outrageous out there. So I'll start. I think Darwin Nunez is going to win the Golden Boot. I think that is my hot take for the World Cup. Because uh, I have Uruguay as my dark horses. And um, so let's see. George. France don't get out of the group stages. Yeah. That was going to be mine. Oh, was it? <sighs> Next yeah. off, yeah. Sorry, I mean they've got they've got an easy group. They've got Denmark, Tunisia, and I've forgotten who else. But World Cup winners don't have a good record of getting out of the group. Especially France have history of that as well. I've just there's some there seems to be a lot of negativity around them at the moment. Their midfield's good, like like obviously like us, we've got a good starting, but their but their depth isn't brilliant. If one of those midfielders, if many gets injured, for example, I don't know. I've just there's, as, as you say, no logic to that whatsoever. They should get out of the group easy, but there's a little something in the back of my mind thinking. I, I hope so as well because we're, we're due to uh, face them in the quarterfinals if we if we win our group and beat whoever is the runners up in Group A. So I'm hoping that will happen. Yeah, and the reason that was mine is because no one quite does an implosion like the French. Um, there's, they always find a way of um, disagreeing with each other and falling out over something and falling out with the coaches. The reigning champions, I think the pressure's on a little bit. Expectations will probably be unrealistically high. Uh, Mbappe's not having a great season at PSG, and if he's not firing, they're in a bit of trouble because Benzema's, Benzema's had a wonderful couple of seasons, but he's not been playing. But Alex, we need we need an original hot take, bro. Uh, like, you got that one stick. Then... Is it a hot take to say I think England's are going to win it? Yeah, I, I would take, say yeah. so. That's a massive hot take, yeah. If you look at the squad unity now, I don't think it's... Um, I can't... It's never been as good since 1966 for this England team. And the last World Cup we went to, no one expected us to do well at all. Um, and we got to the semi-final. Admit that we got stuffed by Belgium in the third-place playoff, but... Um, that Belgian team, if you look at it, was sort of a golden generation. And for them to come third at that World Cup was probably underachieving slightly. I know they faced France in the semi, but um, really that, that team should have got to at least one major final. Um, and I think Gareth Southgate just um, 
He's got people on his side. He's not a great tactician, but he doesn't need it for for, a, for an international tournament. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You're right, <laughs> Louis. I've got three. I think Iran might get through Ooh. the group stage, depending on what happens this week. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on politically mm. there at the moment, but they their side is very good. Um, um, uh, I think Serbia will surprise people. Um, Pixie Stojkovic is a very good coach. Uh, if Mitrovic is fit, I can see them potentially qualifying. Um, and I think Croatia could get to really? the final again. Ooh. Haven't the stars aged quite a bit, though? No. There's a lot of young talent out there. Who, who should we keep our eyes out of for? Uh, left back Borna Sosa. Modric absolutely loves him. Um, obviously, Modric. Uh, they've got quite a good interchangeable and different types of strikers. So uh, there's Ossim, his guy scored against um, Chelsea. In Don't even remind me of that. Um, Pektovic as, well. um, as well, like very different types of striker there. I think people are, uh, their, their path is going to be difficult. It depends if they finish first or second. They finish first and it falls right for them, then they can get to the semi-finals pretty easily. Obviously, if they go the other way, then they might get Argentina and Brazil, you know, then it becomes difficult. So um, Might they face England again at some stage? Uh, semis or final, I think. Semis, and I think yeah. they would probably oh, win. <laughs> yeah, because they weren't good. They weren't good in the last tournament, which is why everyone's saying yeah. oh, they're done and dusted. But they've 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 been really good. Um, and also, I know it that they're watching the film this week. Oh, really? Uh, in their camp. So there you go. There's a nice way to end your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Great. Louis, thank you so much for coming on through another lens. This was Thank incredible. you so much. Thanks, Thank you very much. Thanks.